it's on page 557. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings, with two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding, be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken and through a tenth remains, and though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the turbinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. May the Lord grant us understanding of his word. Thank you, Chris. Let's, let's pray. Uh, Father, please help us to understand this passage this morning. And may we grow more in our desire to know you. And may we be transformed as you're revealed to us through your word today. Amen. I want you to try and think if, uh, if you can remember a time where you saw a really a really awesome movie, the <clears throat> kind of movie that you came out uh, feeling actually like, and you couldn't stop thinking about it for a while. Maybe that's something that hasn't happened since you were a kid or for a long time. But try and humor me. Try and think of what that feeling was like. You come out from a movie and you want to share the experience with people. You want to talk about it. You you change from it. When that sort of thing happens, uh, you don't sort of just walk away from the movie and move on. 
Um, I remember when, like seeing the like seeing Star Wars for the first time as a kid, and you're like, you know, lightsabers and spaceships, and just as a as a ten year old, it was just awesome. And all I wanted to do was think about Star Wars and talk about Star Wars for days after that. If you're not that into movies, um, maybe that's not the best example for you, but you can easily sub in all sorts of things. Think about the last great holiday or adventure you went on that you came away from feeling like it had sort of changed, you had left an effect on you. Or maybe the last great book you finished. Uh, or you could, even, you could even say the same thing for just a really, really good burger or a really good meal. <laughs> Uh, look at how many people post photos of the food they've eaten online. Um, you know, it has something to say that when you have a great experience uh, and it affects you, whether it will positively or profoundly affects you in some way, you want to share that and you want people to know about it. Well, today in Isaiah chapter 6, what you see is kind of a similar sort of situation going on, but scaled up to, to a maximum, maximum level. When Isaiah's commission as God's prophet, we are reminded of the glory and majesty and holiness of God. And that leads to a profound, profound transformation and response in the heart of the prophet. To repent, to receive God's forgiveness, and then to proclaim God's word. Now, when we, we read this passage as Christians, we, I do realize we do have to acknowledge that our situation is different to Isaiah, uh, but we do share something in common. Uh, we have the same awesome, glorious God, and when we come before him, we have to recognize his holiness, and we're changed by it. God's revelation to us generates transformation in our hearts and our minds, and it leads to change in action. Um, now, this, this chapter is a very interesting one in how it fits into the whole book, the, the book of Isaiah as a whole. Um, Isaiah is a very complex part of the Bible. It has lots of different themes that are touched on. But some of the very strong ones that overarch through the whole thing are the idea of God's judgment on a, on a nation who have been rebellious. Uh, but that theme is held in tension the whole time with God's promise and his faithfulness to his people. There are these two themes that kind of run throughout the whole thing. Uh, judgment to a people who have grown hard-hearted and refused to listen to his word, but promises of comfort, restoration, and salvation. In the last few weeks, Steve's been preaching through chapters 1 to 5, and they're often sort of referred to as like an overture to the whole book. So all these different themes that are touched on, particularly judgment and comfort, we've seen them sort of touched on in brief in chapters 1 to 5. You can almost think of, of those chapters as like a movie trailer. A few movie illustrations coming out today. But um, like a movie trailer that shows a few, of, a few seconds of all the different highlights of a film. You, you see the trailer, you can get a bit of a sense of, of where things are going to go, the kind of movie you're getting ready for and what, what, what it's going to be about. And the same way I think 1 to 5 give us a sense of what the book of Isaiah is going to be about. And if you think of it that way, that would actually make chapter 6 here kind of the start of the actual movie, the movie proper. This is where we actually sit down for the, the full cinema experience. 
So that can be a helpful way to just think about this passage. This is actually where it starts, but we're coming, having seen the trailer, we're coming in with a general idea of where things are going to be going, where they're headed. Okay. Now what we see in chapter 6, then, is how God appears to Isaiah personally to commission him as a prophet. Um, what I find so interesting about Isaiah's commissioning is that we're told practically nothing, nothing about Isaiah himself. We don't know anything about the guy or his background at all, really. It just jumps straight to the point. It jumps straight into the action. It says in verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Yeah, wow. Isaiah just sees the Lord on his throne, just like that. What was that like? He says, above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. So straight off the bat, Isaiah just drops that he's had this, this incredible vision of these great beings with six wings whose very voices shook the whole temple and they smoked the place out. So the funny thing about this, this vision, though, is you have these six-winged things that none of us have ever seen anything like before, uh, and yet his description of them is like otherwise very, very lacking. I, I mean, I don't even really know what we're supposed to be picturing here other than that there's six wings. There's only one thing he tells us about them. And that's that these mighty angels were covering their faces and covering their feet before the God on the throne and singing to him in ceaseless praise. You see, as, as intriguing as these might seem, these, these angels, they're not the focal point here. Isaiah mentions these beings only to point out their submission to God, their acknowledgement of his glory and his authority. And they don't even presume to look at God directly. They cover their faces, and yet they're ceaseless in their praise and immediate in their acts to serve him. These seraphim, they're only included to emphasize God's own holiness. Uh, speaking of God, what do we actually see of the Lord himself? Uh, the description of him we get is actually almost as vague. We just see that he's high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe fills the temple. It's not much to go off. And I, I, think, I think what Isaiah's, like what, what this is saying is that it's not meant, we're not meant to have a vivid picture of what God looks like here. I don't think that it's possible for Isaiah to really convey the fullness of what this experience is like. You know, this description, its purpose is just to give an impression, an impression of God's greatness, an impression to realize how much greater he is than anything we can hope to honor him with. In context, right, the Jewish temple is seen as the center of worship to God in the Jewish world, and yet it's like a little doll's house to him. He's just towering over, and just the corner of his robe fills the whole thing up. So that's the impression here of this, this scene with these like six-winged things flying around who have these 
incredibly loud voices that shake the place, serving an even more incomprehensibly great God. And then you just have this guy, Isaiah, just sort of standing in the middle of it all, like totally fish out of water. And like the, I don't know, the picture painted here, in me it almost kind of creates this, this feeling, like what I imagine is he, he's, he's come close to seeing something he's not even really supposed to see. He's seeing into the heavenly realm. It's not normal for people to see things like this. And it kind of makes me think of like if you ever walk into a, a really important meeting at work that like high, of, your, of all the higher ups that you weren't supposed to be and you suddenly sort of, your heart stops for a moment and you realize you've interrupted something and hearing things that you're not supposed to be hearing. That really awkward feeling. Only I, I hesitated to even include that as an illustration because it falls so far short of what it actually is. You know, Isaiah hasn't just come into a work meeting, he's just suddenly found himself in the middle of the courts of heaven and all these things are happening around him. But in doing so, Isaiah realizes something very important. He realizes how much he didn't truly understand God's glory before this moment. You know, sure, as a Jew, uh, he would have understood something of God's glory, holiness and his greatness in theory, but suddenly when he captures a glimpse of the real thing, it just it changes him instantly. Upon coming before the throne of God, Isaiah's heart is changed and driven to repentance. Look at verse 5. He says, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah sees God in this vision, and he immediately recognizes his own impurity, his own unworthiness, his inadequacy, his frailty. And now, like, the thing is, so much of the whole book of Isaiah is actually about the people, the nation's hardening of hearts, hardening of their hearts to God. It's about the people who want to choose to ignore their own lack of trust in God, who want to live their own way, trust in themselves, and pretend that by, that by going through the routine motions of just offering sacrifices semi-regularly, that that is enough to appease God and that their relationship with him is all good just by going through the motions. Everything's going to be fine. Isaiah's message to them for the rest of the book is, no, living as God's people isn't about making obligatory sacrifices. Even in the Old Testament, the sacrifices, they were meant to represent something far, far more important than just going through the motions. They were about showing a heartfelt trust and dependence on God for his provision. They're about dedicating themselves to living lives devoted to the one true God, the giver of life, the giver of all good things. Um, back in chapter 1, Steve covered verse 11 to 13. We'll just look at verse 11 where God himself says, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord, I have had more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fatted animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come up here before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? You know, the, whole, the whole perception the Jewish people have of their relationship with God, it's flipped on its head. 
almost sort of seeing God like he's a little annoying pet or a little annoying dashwood that they have to feed every now and then to just kind of keep it happy, keep it quiet. But the picture you see is that there are people living legalistically. But it's a facade. They don't love God in their hearts. And I think it's safe to say that the problem is that they've forgotten something of God's glory. Now, Isaiah is standing before that God, and he gets it. After his brief glimpse into God's throne room, he falls to his knees and says, Woe to me, I'm ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. Truly coming before the Lord immediately illuminates Isaiah's own unworthiness and his need for some sort of atonement. And it's the same for us. I can do the Presbyterian thing and quote John Calvin here, the beginning of book one of his institutes. Calvin says, It's certain that a man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him, contemplating God, to scrutinize himself. We don't understand ourselves until we look at God. And Calvin clarifies it so that in this life, we, we can't actually even conceptualize what a sinless life looks like. Everything is so tainted by it. We, when we think we're doing pretty well, pretty le- we can do so in a way that's legalistic, comparing ourselves to other people who are sinful. And sure, we might be able to adopt a sort of self-righteousness and convince ourselves that we're doing okay, but it's a lie. It's only when you see what is truly holy, truly pure, truly righteous, when we see God, that that veneer of self-righteousness just melts away. We might all be in different places here today. Some, some of us might be more at risk of being self-righteous. Others might be sort of feeling very aware of our own guilt and inadequacy and frailty. But regardless of which side you might fall on, what we see next in this passage, I think it speaks volumes to all of us. See, immediately upon acknowledging his own impurity and repenting, Isaiah receives cleansing and atonement. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The flip side of recognizing his impurity before God is, and repenting is that God then provides the means for Isaiah to be clean and to be worthy in his role as a prophet. It's important to note here that Isaiah did nothing to have his guilt taken away. It was all God's grace. And this, this live coal... It was taken from the temple altar, and it kind of comes packaged with this, the significance of everything of the altar and the temple it came from. Isaiah's guilt was paid for through a substitution uh, through, through the Jewish temple. There's sort of this significance that comes with this action. And God's, God removes Isaiah's guilt through substitution. Isaiah no longer needs to be punished, and his sin no longer keeps him from God's presence. 
And that's what real relationship with God looks like. Not the legalism you see in the description of the nation, but in honestly facing the depth of your guilt or our guilt before God and receiving the grace and the substitution he offers. And then it's this experience of grace that that gives Isaiah the confidence he needs to then go and hear and respond to God's word and instruction to him and, and take it. And this next thing I'm going to say is kind of the clincher of this, this whole message this morning for us, though. Because Isaiah is transformed by this message to God through this vision, this profound vision that in some ways I'm envious of. I remember as a kid kind of wishing I could have some sort of profound vision of God in my dreams like they do in the Old Testament. He's, entered in, he's, he's had this, this vision and entered into a real relationship with God through repentance and then accepting God's grace. But actually, in this sense, as Christians, we're actually in a a far better position than even Isaiah. You see, we actually have a greater, greater revelation than him. We already have God's promised Messiah. We're on the other side of Jesus having come. We have the, the revelation about the one who all of Isaiah's prophecies and messages about God's promises were about. And through Christ, we then have the Holy Spirit who then opens our hearts and our minds to understand the words God's given us. Jesus is a greater and more powerful, more personal revelation to each of us, not just of God's holiness, but also of his love and compassion and proof proof of his faithfulness to his promises for his people and of the substitution that is paid in their place so that their guilt might be taken away. You see, Isaiah cries out in repentance before the foot of God's throne where he faces God's glory. We can cry out in repentance before the foot of the cross where we also face God's glory but also his mercy. How should we respond to that? Shouldn't it affect and change us? Should we not want to go and share that? Well, in verse 8, we we see the final way Isaiah's revelation from God changes him, and it's in obedience. Verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. I kind of find this passage a bit of a, almost a humor, it's a bit funny to me because Isaiah's the only one there. There's no, actually no one else if you, if you picture the scene. So part of me wonders whether God's question here is actually a little bit rhetor- like rhetorical. Like, you know, who will I send, Isaiah? Really, is he saying, you know, your guilt has just been taken away by grace alone. Your lips have been made clean. You can now speak the truth on my behalf. What are you going to do with that? And after Isaiah faces the reality of his own sinfulness before God, after he repents, after he receives this undeserved forgiveness, what can he do but say, here I am, send me. So 
often we, we might run into the question, a common question, why would Christians obey God if you've been forgiven for everything anyway? I think part of the answer that you see right here. You're forgiven, your guilt is taken away, you can stand before God now sin-free, how will you use that freedom? There's sort of an implicit understanding between God and Isaiah here. He says, I've, I've cleansed you for a purpose. Go and tell the people. Now, there's one other thing to note about the task Isaiah has given here, and it's the contents of the message he's given itself. You see, in the message God gives Isaiah, he actually anticipates that these people won't respond to this word in repentance. He actually says he doesn't want them to respond. He wants their hearts to be hardened. If you look at verse 9 and 10, he says, Go and tell the people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their ears. God says he doesn't. He actually doesn't want the people to hear. So I ask him, for how long, O Lord? What, you know, what's going on? And, and God responds by saying, this is actually all part of his plan. And it's a plan that we see unfold over the rest of the book and the rest of the Bible, in fact. He says, until the cities lie ruined without inhabitants, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away in the land utterly forsaken, and though a tenth remains in the land, again it will be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leaves stumps when they're cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. And God says that this judgment upon Israel, it's all part of his plan, and that's a plan to restore God's people through a cleansing and a judgment and then a, a holy seed. Steve's touched on in past weeks. There'll be a, a kernel from which God's people will reemerge. But for now, God says the judgment must occur. The time has come uh, where people's hearts have been hard for too long. But where does all this leave Isaiah? He's just said, here I am, send me. But now he's bringing a message to the people with the full knowledge that they're ultimately going to reject it and condemn themselves even more to God's judgment. Well, what about where it leaves him is there to actually worry about? You see, Isaiah's motivation for responding to God's commissioning, it never had anything to do with the people's response to what he has to say to begin with. Isaiah's willingness to go and share the word came out of the transformation in his own heart when he saw God's holiness, when he recognized his own sinfulness, when he accepted God's grace and forgiveness, and when he now chooses to respond with obedience. The motivation for proclaiming God's message ultimately had nothing to do with the results. It's all about the transformation of his heart that occurred right when he beheld the Lord. Now again, our situation is different to Isaiah's. But we do bring a message that warns of a judgment along with the hope of the gospel of salvation. And like Isaiah, we need to remember what our motivation is as we share it. Not to be disheartened and give up when people don't receive it the way we like, 
Jesus warns us uh, plenty in the parable of the sower, as one example, that many people will reject the word, but rather we obey out of the transformation we receive through knowing God's glory in Jesus Christ. So to bring this all full circle, let me ask you, as we too are, we're actually recipients of our own commissioning to go and make disciples of all nations. How often do we dwell on how great God is? I know we try to at times, on some Sundays and different times throughout the year, but throughout the week when we pray, when we read our Bibles, do we always remember that this God, who has these powerful beings we can't even imagine, flying around submitting to him, covering their faces, and serving and praising him with fear and reverence ceaselessly, this God who sits over all creation, just towering over it, that that's who we're speaking and listening to. Yet, who through Christ's substitution, we can approach as cleansed, free, confident. We're unobstructed. And he actually listens to our request to him. Isn't that unreal? You know, as Christians, I think at times we've all had to experience something of that reality of, of who God is. And that's why we come to Christ in the first place. But we need to be reminded of it, don't we? And this, this glimpse of God we see on the throne in Isaiah 6, remember that that's actually not even the real thing. That's just an impression. The reality is so much greater. And we can grow in appreciation of that reality more and more deeply as we pursue God and come to know him more. So let's keep up the discipline of coming before him, of hearing his word, of offering our prayers and praise, and of reminding each other of his holiness. And throughout our lives, let's teach our hearts to revere him more and more. Come. Let's all kneel before the foot of the cross. There we behold the one who sits on the throne. Together behold the glory of our God. And in repentance, forgiveness and obedience be transformed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can come before your throne and approach you as a people who are cleansed and welcomed into your presence. You are holy and majestic beyond our understanding. And we ask that we would continue to grow in recognizing your holiness and glory. And we would be reminded to depend on your grace in the gospel and to proclaim your word obediently. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.